This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthals. On today's pod, we're looking back at the World SBK action from Most, Steve English and Gordon Ritchie on the pod. And uh, Gordo, no doubt you were given a, a blank check for all the hard work that you did at the weekend. Oh dear. Started early with that. Uh, yes. Uh, oh, if, if that were only so, mate. If that were only so. In fact, if I had a blank check for the weekend, we wouldn't be talking now. I'd be sitting on a beach in the Maldives. But that's another story. Um, no, I'm well, the, the check has to clear as well, Gordo. Yes, that's the problem. Yes, but if you know where to put it in, it'll clear anyway. Don't worry. <laughs> I know people. I'm joking, I'm I'd joking. I'd say you do, Gordo. I'd say you do. What did you make of the weekend, though, Gordo? Obviously, it was a new track for us. The 50th Circuit World SBK has gone to... And I thought it was pretty cool. We arrived into the track and I have to say, whenever I walked into it, I thought, you know, this place looks fairly dingy. It's from, you know, 40 years ago it was built. Very quirky. But as I was walking down through the paddock, even on Thursday, I thought, you know what? This place is pretty cool. There's clearly a sense of character about it and uh, very different to a lot of other tracks we've been to. Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, it's a very strange place. Um, it's like two ribbons of tarmac, um, weaving through across a, a kind of valley um you've got a beautiful castle behind it whatever century castle fantastic place on the hill dominating everything and then straight across from you, you've got some absolutely hellish looks like communist era mega industrial facility burning flaming things off through its chimneys and stuff it's it's a weird weird place but the layout of the track is really good it was really interesting 21 corners and just over four kilometers it's busy um, trying to get the riders to describe exactly where it was like or what it was like was difficult which shows you it isn't like anywhere else but I'd say those bits out the back of the pits of Suzuka bizarrely there was a lot of that because there's an awful lot of changes of direction while basically going in a straight line like the Veen slangs at, uh, at Asin or somewhere but on a different scale um, it's definitely not a modern racetrack and it definitely needs to be more modernised and there are several places that you would not want to fall off if you were a rider. Um, it needs the, the safety aspects, primary safety aspects, do need taken in hand. Um, but other than that, it was actually quite good. And yeah, in the asphalt, there was a few bits of bad asphalt. Um, but if they do all the work, it could end up being a great place to go. Yeah, turn one, two and three was certainly the section where they need to do something with the asphalt there. The surface clearly was an issue in that section, but everyone knew it was going to be an issue as well. But I thought it was interesting talking to the riders about it because it's a very old section of track. And by and large, a lot of them did actually say to me that the grip wasn't as bad as it appeared it would be through that section of the track. And then once you were through the first chicane, suddenly then the track really did open up and you were able to have a lot of fun on it. But the big thing that they said to me wasn't so much about the surface or anything like that. It was just about the layout of turn one, two, three, that it just lent itself to accidents. It lent itself to incidents. And that's where they'd like to see a change. A lot of riders actually said, you know, they could imagine what the old layout was like. The really fast left hand was basically turn four was turn one. And obviously there's not enough run out on the exit of that corner to use that anymore. But that's what the old layout was. They'd like to see a change long term that just kind of opens up the first sector a little bit instead of coming back across yourself. Yeah, the problem is when you get the a sector like that on an incredibly fast straight or all everybody breaking together in one group. It's the early laps, it's the biggest jeopardy there. And we obviously saw a few incidents in all the classes where people were going off. Like Monza. They've had how many attempts at getting the first chicane at Monza sorted so that you're not firing around that first big Carvone um, as you did in the old days. So yes, it's too tight, it's too small. Um, it almost doubles back on itself. It's kind of like, but Mizano's a bit like that. It's just a bit wider and not quite as steep. It's the same idea. There was an old hairpin at Silverstone we used to use. I don't know if they still use that for BSB or whatever, which was literally back on itself and everybody moaned about it, but it was a good overtaking opportunity. But yes, that needs to be not straightened out but it needs to be sorted out whether they just widen the whole thing to let everybody funnel through or whatever while they're resurfacing it that would be the time to do it 
Yeah, it was funny. Whenever I was chatting to riders after the first race, a few of them said, oh yeah, we were four abreast down into that first corner and then suddenly I saw one rider on the inside and then another rider on the inside of the inside and then another rider even more inside that. So it seemed that uh, everyone was trying to just get through that pinch point. And obviously enough in some of the races, we saw that that wasn't the case. Race two, we saw a crash into turn one on lap one and uh, it, it's easy for those kind of incidents to happen. But I thought by and large... This was this was a successful first round of the track, considering as well that Most was added last minute. They spent a fair bit of money in the last few months to try and make some changes. I think it was six hundred thousand euro they spent. But obviously enough, Gordo, there's more money that's going to need to be spent, and in all likelihood, more money that will be spent. Yes, apparently there's a five year long project. I did ask to speak to someone in charge at Most at the weekend that wasn't quite forthcoming. But apparently there's a five year project. In theory, there's a five year contract. Um, by the end of those five years, I would imagine it's going to be a, a, a perfectly normal, character-filled, modern track with all the facilities. For example, we were working out of a tent in the, the media centre at the weekend. Um, it's it's one of those places like Imola, uh, sorry, yeah, like Imola, with a very, very long, narrow paddock, which meant everywhere you went, you were going for miles. The one place all year I'd want a scooter would be most because everything's uh, narrow and right along the length of the track. Um, but yeah, if they, if they make the facilities and make the improvements that uh, that they need to, then it's going to be fine. And it's certainly got a lot more character than most places. The location is is amazing in the, those hills. Um, it, it could be a great, great track. And there's nothing wrong with old school as long as you bulldoze but all the, the bits of uh, barriers and stuff out the way and make modern, safe runoff areas. There's nothing wrong with being an old-fashioned, fast, fast track. We've talked about it a lot at different times in the past, Gordo, that World SBK needs its own identity. Most is one of those tracks that can give you an identity as well. Like I've always said that I think it'd be fantastic if World SBK kind of went to five tracks that were only for superbikes. Most is a track MotoGP will never go to. That's great. That's a good, positive step for the championship. You want to have your Phillip Islands, your Assens, your you know your historic racetracks. Mizano's great for the atmosphere. You want to keep those tracks on it, but you want to go to Donington Park. You want to go to places like Most. You want to go to places, you know, long term Kyalami or back to Japan. Those kind of tracks that give you that real identity. Yes, absolutely. Um, Donna made a big deal about um, keeping Superbikes' identity keeping things separate. They wanted to put clear blue water between the bikes and performance levels, etc. Well, I think that should extend to everything. It hasn't been quite so successful in performance levels because the even though MotoGP is amazing and the, the, the bikes themselves are technological marvels in many ways, the lap time difference is a bit. It's not gigantic. Um, I don't know how they can close that with a 1,000cc bikes, but what you can do is exactly what you spoke about there. Give the two series their own distinct and different characters three races a weekend in Superbike actually just extended that so that's a positive thing for me it's very different from MotoGP where they only do one it used to be we did two so now we're doing three I think that would I know that was brought in for COVID and everything else but I'd like to see those three races kept on now because it's such a big step change from MotoGP yeah I agree with you completely I'd, I'd like to go to different tracks as long as it's safe for the riders to be there and we can all do our jobs the way we need to then we should just consider going anywhere. And if it's not a GP track, even better. I want to ask you a question, actually, just in relation to the safety issues that came up this weekend, Gordo, because it's always interesting when we go to a new track that you look at it from the perspective, from the perception of these are the things that should be done, that have to be done. If World SBK turned up to go back to Laguna or back to Brands, do you think would anyone be negative about the safety elements of those tracks again or would it be oh we're back at historic tracks for the championship uh, I think it's for starters there's been lots of work done at the, uh, certainly Laguna uh, Brands Hatch is different from the one I remember us racing at in terms of certain areas there's more runoff but the trouble is there is a kind of rule book for these things um, and it's not just how close barriers are it's how you approach them where the crashes with the expected crashes would happen etc um, Superbike doesn't require the same grade as MotoGP to run races at. I don't know why. To me, there should be an A grade. We should only race an A grade track and racetracks. Some places, Brands Hatch, to some extent, Laguna, um, still probably can't make that. Imola is another one that people talk about. But um, yeah, 
people would love to go back to all these places. I would love to see us race at Brandsatch. It's a unique place. It's a wonderful racetrack. But it probably, they can't do, or they certainly tell us they can't do anything unless they change the track layout. And they also say they can't do that because then they'd have to cleave down all those trees in the middle, which apparently they're also not allowed to do. Um, but racetracks have to want to have us as well as us wanting to go there. I think I'd love to go back to Laguna. I'd love to go back to Brandsatch. I'd love to go back to uh, many of those old school places. As long as you get the bulldozers in and make the primary safety enough runoff, then we can everything else you can you can uh, do with air fence, etc. in certain other places. So yeah, I mean, going back to those classic ones would be fantastic. Most, yeah, we're probably there for different reasons because of the, the current global situation. But there's no reason why they can't turn that into uh, a totally safe place that's, that becomes its own little mini classic. And we desperately need to go back to Central Europe. We, we've obviously got another new track coming up as well, Gordo, the next round of the championship in Navarra in northern Spain. I'm actually really excited about that. I'm I'm going out to Spain a few days early, actually, as well, just get a little bit of a holiday in as well. But uh, I'm really excited to go to northern Spain for a race because we haven't really had MotoGP going anywhere up there over the years. We've always been down in Barcelona, Valencia, Jerez, Harama, long time ago as well. But Navarra is a brand new track for everyone. I'm keen to see what it's like. Yeah, I mean, the closest you get to Navarra is uh, Aragon. And that's still a decent schlep away. Um, it's a whole new territory, a whole new area. World Superbike's been a fairly difficult sell in Spain for all those years. But we've actually been to more Spanish racetracks in the history of World Superbike than anywhere else. Amazingly. I was kind of stunned to find that out recently, but it's true. Um, and that's before we've even gone to Navarra. But I love to go to a new racetrack. It makes it exciting for me. I've been doing this well over 20 years. So when I find a, a new racetrack to go to, I like it. And the thing about Navarra is, it's new. It isn't an old track that they're, they're trying to modernise. It's a new track. I think it's 10 years old, maybe less than 10 years old. So in terms of safety, in terms of other things, it should be all built in because it had to meet criteria that were uh, higher than the, the were for tracks that were designed 30, 40, 50 years ago. So it looks very angular. It looks very modern. It looks like a lot of low-speed uh, corners. Um, that didn't stop Chang being a decent racetrack. It didn't stop Valencia being a decent racetrack. I don't know if it's a quite... St I've never been there. I've never even been for a test, so I don't know. But looking at all the information and talking to people about it, it's going to be different from Most because Most is a big flowing track with a few slower corners. It'll be its own self. And again, that might be exactly what we need. The only thing I'm slightly concerned about is it's a wee bit far away from most of the really big Spanish population centres. So when things return to normal, it'll be a bit of a trip for people to go. Four hours from Madrid, um, Barcelona, three and a half from Madrid. You know, it is going to be the locals we're playing to in the hardcore, uh, which is fine because we're a bikers championship. I'm sure the bikers will go. Gordo, you love it whenever I just spring a surprise onto you during the podcast. Carry on. Yes, I do. I love it. So, obviously, you've been covering World SBK for a long time. What were the Spanish tracks that we've gone to? We have been to Harama, Jerez, Albacete, Valencia, now Barcelona, Aragon, and will be Navarra. Oh, he's on it. Yeah, I tell you what. You have to get up early in the morning to get one past Gordon Ritchie. He's clearly done. You've clearly done a feature on this, and you already just had the had the prep done. How Gordon, dare yeah. you? How dare you? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> but I was stunned I to what, find that seven. I mean, seven. It's going to be seven come two weeks' time. I'm amazed at that. I'm 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 excited by it though as well, and I think what makes it even more exciting is what we've seen over the last wee while, and this season's been a great season so far. Ducati, Kawasaki and Yamaha pretty much very evenly matched in terms of what the performance of their bikes can do. And last weekend in Most, we saw that again. And I'm going to just talk about the top rack versus riding battle this weekend before we take an ad break. And then when we come back, we'll talk about the rest of that battle in a little bit more detail. But top rack versus riding was fantastic all the way through this weekend. And obviously we had Johnny in that scrap as well, but Ray really had to be right on the limit all the way through this weekend. So I'm going to take him out of the proceedings a little bit and just talk about the top two because Reading set the pace, defined the pace for much of the weekend, probably should have won both feature races, but 
Toprak, when he's on form, is just an absolute force. And I thought race one was a really good example of that. He did really well just to dig in and go with Scott because I didn't think he had quite the same level of pace and consistency as Reading over this weekend. Obviously, he was using the X tire in race one, gave him a bit of an advantage compared to Reading. But I thought that the battle they had was as good as we've seen for a long time. Yeah, definitely. And the thing about Toprak is he's learned to ride and race by riding motorbikes against Kenan Safoglu and every other young Turkish rider. That's how they train. They they just go at it. They, they literally take every single chance they can to overtake. That breeds a certain gladiatorial, combative nature. Scott Redding is not scared to get the elbows out as well. And when they're both on it, you get the kind of weekend that we had there. It's compelling. It's wonderful. It's not Kawasaki and Jonathan Ray, which is very important. It's two different things. Scott's come from outside. Top right's come from inside. There's a million different dynamics that make that, uh, that, that potential battle interesting. When you get the actual battles you had, and battle was uh, certainly came along in one of the races, at least right at a key time, which was caused a great controversy uh, over the weekend. Um, the fight between those guys was wonderful entertainment, partly because they're both quite similar, quite tall, quite big guys, but they ride almost completely differently. The styles, their approach to the styles, the way they ride, the the, the way they break, everything. There's, they're, to me, they're not very similar, but they end up getting the same result, which is always more interesting than two guys that just oh we can use the front better or we can use the rear better they're they're so different from each other yeah i think that uh, they're about as far apart from each other in terms of their riding styles you could get both of them quite spectacular in their own ways top rack obviously just unbelievable on the front end reading comes from that one two five moto two style still looks to carry that corner speed but i thought that what was interesting for me was their race craft and the way they were approaching things. Redding came into this weekend and obviously he had an awful lot in his mind. We saw him all the way through the weekend thinking of his friend Brad Jones, thinking of the dangers that are always present at Moss. Now Scott's obviously a rider that's had to deal with that a lot during his career. Obviously in the Grand Prix paddock, he was involved in the crash with Tommy Zawa. That left its mark on Scott from a very early stage in his career and he's always been very sensitive about track safety and different things. This weekend, it seemed that that was obviously more on his mind than at most races. And then on that last lap in the battle against Toprak, it seemed that again, in the aftermath of that, he was upset about the risks that were being taken in that battle. Yeah, um, I think ultimately uh, he was obviously quite a troubled guy at the beginning of the weekend and he did turn it around and good on him for doing so. But he wasn't happy from before we got there. He went to test there on a training bike and and just wasn't very keen. I understand all this. I'm the number one advocate for rider safety. I'd rather go to a boring track that's totally safe for the riders um, than a careful track that that isn't. Not emotionally, but if you had to make me make that decision. Um, And obviously, given the recent events, Scott's maybe been a bit more tuned into that than, than even before. So I get it. But he did turn it around. But the the I don't think there was anything particularly wrong with Asgatlioglu's pass on, on Reading. I just think he came from way back. He had a go at it halfway around the lap and then finally made it stick on the final lap. I don't see there being a big issue, but it obviously was for Scott and he said so quite publicly. Yeah, I think the big thing for it is because we're, uh, Toprak tried to come through at turn 15, Toprak did what Toprak does and that's I'm not going to make it. I let off the brake and I'll try and roll through here. The Yamaha lets you do that to a much better extent than the other bikes. And then he came through that 16, 17, 18 complex, those flowing corners. He came through them really well and was right on the back of riding through that. I think Scott just thought, Toprak made a mistake at turn 15. I've got more margin than I actually have. And he was surprised to see Toprak come through. And then obviously... He thinks he comes from very far behind. The camera angle that we see doesn't make it appear that way. Scott said as much on Sunday as well to me. He said, you know, it doesn't look that bad on camera, but the biggest issue for him is the willingness for Toprak to go to that point at any given time. And I think what Scott said was the Keenan Safoglu school of training is that you're going to bash bars with other riders, just get used to it. Scott doesn't come from that school. And that's what seemed to annoy him more was just the willingness of a rider to seem to go to that limit. 
for me, it was a move that was there to be made because Scott seems to make, well, he leaves the door open. You know, he takes his normal race in line. It's the last lap of the race. You're up against Toprak. Of course, Toprak's going to give give it a go. I think every other rider on the grid would have been, you know, a meter or a meter and a half further to the inside. And if Toprak tries to take the move, fair play to him. If he doesn't, he's trying to go around the outside and you run him out on the outside. You know, you give yourself that chance. It seemed to me that Scott just was surprised that Toprak was as close as he was. Yes, I mean, I, I had a discussion with uh, Jamie Whittam about this afterwards when he's, we, we could ask each other, what do you think about it? Um, and to me, yeah, the, the, it seems to me he just, he, he didn't expect that Toprak was going to come through. He thought he dusted him. When he did, um, that allowed Toprak to be in the position to then hold him behind as he did because it wasn't the final corner, it was the penultimate corner. And he did it to the... What what Reading would have done in hindsight is stay a bit closer because then Toprak couldn't have come round the inside. He'd had to have tried to go round the outside. And remember, the, the green sections of track now, the track limits are your friend now because the rider can't go onto that in the last lap and then overtake you. So you hold the inside, it means that you can, quite rightly, if you're ahead, you can drift over and make sure the guy can't come round, even on the kerbstone, because then he risks going on the green, and then he's done. So you will win. If you are if you stop somebody caught up the inside, and you've got that double right-hander afterwards, to me, you're going to be in the 99% advantageous position to win. Um, so yeah, I think it was a storm in a teacup, but I can also understand why Scott was upset. I also think Scott probably was a bit upset at himself for even allowing the possibility of it to happen. And I think that was the thing. The frustration that we saw from Reading on Saturday was just building all the way through. In Superpole, he, he gave out about the fact that there were yellow flags out and he had to do a second lap on the Superpole tyre. The rules changed in Superpole to give you two Q tyres. So if there is a yellow flag, at least you still had a chance. Now, personally, and I think myself and Alex said it when we were on air at the weekend, that's part of the game. And you might get a bit unlucky, but you do have two laps, you do have two two tyres. Scott got a little bit unlucky with his timing. But on the other side of that coin, you can't spend the whole weekend giving out about safety and then saying, oh, I had a yellow flag, I should have been able to go. And I think that's where it was quite interesting for me was to see Scott, obviously the pressure, it's building on him. He had 13 races without a podium before race one. So he was feeling this all the way through. And I think that was something that came to the fore this weekend was he's clearly under pressure from Ducati. And now maybe with the podiums and the win, maybe that starts to lessen a little bit on him when we go to Navarra. Maybe. I think as a factory Ducati rider, you're always expected to win. Um, we've mentioned this before, Ducati are quite hard on the riders compared to a lot of teams. Um, certainly that's the reputation, whether it's true or not. Um, and they're always under pressure. Um, Ronaldo was the same. He was talking, he's been asked questions already about his future. Um, mainly because neither of them are leading the World Championship. So... It's a difficult position, that, but I think the most impressive thing about Scott the Weekend is the way that he went away, whether between him and his team, whatever, sorted it all out and came back and had an incredibly confident, really high pressure, but dusted off a win on in race two and looked great doing it and was much happier doing it. Obviously, had the marriage uh, proposal at the end of it as well, so he picked up a wee surprise. But there's a perfect example of someone turning an entire weekend round um, to, to come out of it shiny. I mean, he came out re- lifted to me. He, he stood a bit taller to me and his chances of maybe catching and running down the front two guys now were not impossible. They looked impossible on Friday at Moss. You thought, well, this is all done. Yeah, 50-point gap now between Reading and Ray at the top of the standings. And it does change the complexion whenever you've got that bit of momentum behind you. Ray didn't have that momentum leaving Most Suddenly, Scott's back into play a little bit. You know, when you speak to him about the championship, he's not talking in terms of the championship. He's talking about race to race, week to week, try and just build on what he can. I think it's obviously going to be a tough ask. You know, we've seen in 18 races so far this year, Johnny's only been off the podium twice. Top Rack's only been off, I think, three or four times. So it's going to be tough to race down that sort of consistency. But Reading's got the bike that he should be able to do that quite a bit through the season. Yeah, I mean, the Ducati doesn't seem to be consistent for setup, and it doesn't matter which rider you talk about. Um, all the Ducati riders have made the same point at the weekend that it works in some instances and doesn't work so well in others. You think you've got your setup, sorry, you take it to the next track and it doesn't work. 
Um, that has been a recurrent theme. So that's the difficulty Reading faces for the rest of the year. However, Johnny's been in a position of not scoring um, and scoring lowly and falling off and, and having moments, whether it's his own design, the bike, or his rivals. Obviously, Gerloff uh, took him off onto the grass in Aragon. So it's nothing is written at all this year. And Scott could do a bit of catching up if the consistency of his bike as much as anything else uh, continues from now over to, to we don't know how long the season's going to be. It could be 11 rounds, it could be 13. We could have both flyaways or none. So we don't know what, what, what where the final goals are going to be, never mind uh, how much people can catch up. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the next few rounds play out. We're going to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast and when we come back, we're going to look at some of the other riders in the field before we, we finish off with Kawasaki and Jonathan Ray as well. Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on- and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, Gordo, we're going to move on to talk about some of the riders behind those podium scraps. And I think the most interesting one to start with is Garrett Gerloff and his GRT Yamaha. Because obviously after Assen, Gerloff was probably the most watched man in the paddock. And this weekend, I don't think we saw a sight nor sound of Gerloff. It really looked like he just dialed it right back down to as low as he could in the aggressive stakes. Every time we saw him on screen, he was sitting behind riders. He wasn't willing to put a wheel down the inside. It was a very different Garrett Gerloff. And the thing with it is, you know, I talked about it from free practice one. I said, what you really want to see from Gerloff is a 6-6-6. Comes away with just top six finishes in all three races. We don't really see him. He does a good job in qualifying. You know, he did that. He qualified on the third row with a grid. And then he just had quiet weekend, really. And uh, I thought... That was good. But then as the weekend progresses, you're also looking at it and you're thinking, I don't know, Gary, you don't have to be all or nothing. You just need to be that little bit below the limit. Yeah, I mean, Gerloff is very impressive. Um, but he's made... The, the thing that gets me and the reason why we're talking about this with him is it's the same mistake over and over. Early laps, full fuel tank, too close, going in places that other riders maybe wouldn't go. That needs eradicated from his riding. Um, but definitely after Assen because he took out uh, the lead Yamaha rider um, either he's had a proper talk to himself or more likely everybody in Blues had a proper talk to him there was some public comments made by other Yamaha teams after Assen which is unusual um, so yeah there, there, there definitely was a, a change when after Assen something, something clicked with him or was made to click with him and it showed in his performances in Most yeah, what I did hear from someone in in Most about Gerloff was that after Assen, at like six o'clock in the afternoon, so I don't know, two, three hours after the race is finished, he was just lying on the on the back of the team's truck, still in his leathers, absolutely dejected. So he did clearly have a big impact for what had happened. He knew exactly how significant it was. And then you know, for two weeks, he's had to deal with that. He's had to deal with that on his own mind. And then I'm sure if he looked at social media, he had to deal with the reaction that he was getting. If he listened to our podcast, he had to listen to the reaction that he was getting. And it was the same reaction from an awful lot of people about that's a mistake you can't make. And it's a mistake that we've seen him make a few times already this season, like you said, Gordo. But I'm keen now for Navarra to see him start to just wind it back on because the talent is is there it's obvious he's a he's a great rider he's already a real top tier rider in world sbk he puts the cat amongst the pigeons that's what we want to see but you want to see him able to do it where he's able to race with everyone rather than just pull through on them and now is whenever he's going to be just starting to dial that back up and hopefully in the next few rounds that's where he gets that consistency that he needs because the biggest issue from this year has been the crashes and qualifying as much as anything else. Mizano and Assen both relegated him to the back of the field and left him with so much work to do for the rest of the weekend that incidents were inevitable. 
Yeah, that's uh, a very key point about qualifying. You have to make you have to qualify as well as you can, but you also have to make sure you get on those first two. And if you really can't make it, or someone else is just a bit faster than you, three rows. You do not want to be starting from five, six, seven rows. It's, it's impossible. Um, it's not impossible, but it's much more difficult, and you have to take more risk. So what he needs to do is sort out his qualifying, be almost conservative in the first three or four laps, maintain his position, stay inside that top five or six, and then we've seen how fast he is. He can pick people off and go for it. All those incidents have happened early that I remember. I might be wrong, but all the incidents that we're, we're remembering here seem to have happened very early in races. And that is something that he, he needs to work on and maybe he did in most. I don't want to see the guy defanged I want to see the guy coming back aggressive and, and exuberant and, and exciting to watch. But there is a limit, and if he understands what that is now, great. Just when you look at Yamaha in general, Gordo, because I think it's fair to say that Yamaha has made massive steps forward in the last few years. I think everyone that's watched World SBK can see that. I think Yamaha has got the best all-round package now in World SBK. I think maybe if you had still someone like Bautista on the Ducati that could extract something extra that we haven't seen anyone else do with the V4 or maybe we'd still view the Ducati as that bike. But when you look at Toprak, Gerloff and now Andrea Locatelli, two rounds in a row where Locatelli has been on the podium constantly inside the top six, that shows how strong that package is now. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, Locatelli uh, was a star at the weekend for lots of reasons, but also an Aston. Um, and he's a rookie. He's, he's first year rider in Superbike. He's used to riding smaller bikes was amazing super sport champion last year and then came into Superbike and part of the reason he's able to do what he's doing is exactly what you say, the Yamaha is such a rounded package now. It works in virtually every area of the racetrack. It's got no bad characteristics that we can we can see anymore. I disagree with the general, or what people say is that they've made massive steps. I think they've made a million small steps. I don't think there is a massive step. That bike's had a couple of... Uh, regenerations and so on but it's a million small things in that Yamaha they haven't got some revolutionary motorbike it's all the things that make a difference to lap time a hundredth of a second here a tenth of a second there every lap every racetrack that's what that's what success is in racing and they've now got that I had a conversation with, with Paul Denning uh, when we were last in Phillip Island and he was saying how good the Yamaha was and so on and, and I kind of disagreed with him and he was like, well, look at the way the races are. At that time, the bike was nearly there. Obviously, Toprak went out and won a race and his first first go on at that time. But I think that was a year too early for Paul to be that confident and so on and, and how good the Yamaha was as an overall package. I think this year is, is completely correct. It's a beautifully rounded package. And I think that the big step they made, Gordo, was literally just a little bit of top speed because the bike's always been good for using the tyre, it's always been a good bike for corner speed, it's always had all those traditional characteristics that we associate with a Yamaha, whereas now it's just pushed itself closer to the top of the top speed chart. Uh, yeah, well, there is, yes, there is that, and a lot of that's to do with aerodynamics. It's a lot to do with that, is, is how it cuts through the air, and most importantly, how it fights and races with other guys. It's not just how fast you are on your own, it's how fast you are, with other people, how you can benefit from a slipstream, etc. But again, that's to me, that's 10 little things, including a bit more horsepower, but it's also 10 little things in the bodywork, rider position, um, you know, there's, there's everything. It, it's keeping the keeping more power, but also maybe they could always have had that power. But remember, they weren't two or three years ago. Maybe they started getting a bit marginal for reliability, so they made those changes to the package and development. Um so they could have went faster, but it would maybe made the life of the engine too short, given that you're only allowed seven engines a year. So the, there's a lot of, that's what I mean, it's, it's absolutely not one thing. I think they can now let the bike sing happily, and also the mapping. They've obviously got the mapping, and the, so there's a mechanical side of the engine, and then the engine management system that literally controls it. That's a lot smoother, so they can go fast at the top end and keep a mid-range, which is ideal, that's what you want. So it's a million changes, they're now not slow in top speed. Um, I think you might be right, and it's the most rounded package now. But it's rounded at the high level. It may have been rounded before, but a lower level. I think one of the big things for them as well, Gordo, was their recruitment drive. And I don't mean in terms of Top Rack or Gerloff or Locatelli. The engineering side, 
they made big investments. And, you know, one of those hirings was bringing in Chaz Davis's ex crew chief from Ducati, um, Alberto Mara, bring him in to then have him as, as a liaison between all the different teams and the technical areas. And he's got a lot of experience, good experience from Ducati as well. And he's probably played a key role in being able to filter through a lot of the information and then bring forward that development. They've done that a lot with electronics engineers for MotoGP. They bring them through and I think they've done a really good job of just making sure they can maximise an awful lot of their project. Absolutely. I mean, Morrow's uh, been in the championship since day one. Um, he is the, one of the most experienced people you can imagine. He understands what makes a, how to turn a production bike into a racing bike. He's been doing it all his life. Um, and then when you look through, it is interesting when you look in that Yamaha garage, because all those faces may not be traditionally Yamaha people, might not have been Yamaha people for 100 years. But when you look at all the guys in the back, there's a huge amount of respected experience in there. And it's a cumulative deal to get the performance out of the bike. All those guys might only be responsible individually for half a percent of the improvement in that bike. But when you add all those pieces together, you get several percent in improvement. Um, and don't forget, they've also got riders that have got a lot to prove and they're making the most of it. They've got younger riders. Those three Yamaha guys are talking about being on the podium are all got something desperate to prove. You've got Locatelli, who's trying to, obviously now he wants to be World Superbike Champion. He'd probably never get back to MotoGP. You've got Gerloff, who wants to be World Superbike Champion, but does want to go to MotoGP. And you've got Razgat Leoglu, who just wants to be World Superbike Champion and then see what he can do, whether he goes MotoGP or stays where he is. They've all, they're all on an upward and ambitious trajectory. So when someone says, do this and you'll go faster, they're more inclined to listen than a guy who's won three World Championships and goes, hmm... Well, that didn't work when I rode the such and such or the blah blah. You know, there's a big change there. Yeah, and I think that's one of the big things that can help drive forward that project. And it's interesting to look at that in comparison to some of the other manufacturers. We talked there about Yamaha and the steps they've made, small steps here, there, and everywhere. Honda and BMW is a very different set of circumstances. You've got two very experienced riders. Leon Haslam, one of the most experienced superbike riders on the planet. Alvaro Bautista, a lot of experience from the Grand Prix paddock, a few years on a superbike now. And they haven't been able to bring that Honda project forward. You look at BMW, Tom Sykes, a former world champion. And Michael Vandermark, you know, very experienced rider that's been on a Honda, Yamaha, now BMW. And both those projects are that step behind. You know, Honda, as it has been over the course of the last years, looks like the fifth manufacturer on the grid. BMW, over the course of this year, it's at podiums for both riders, and they're that little step closer to the front three that maybe on some weekends they're actually going to be there or thereabouts. But Honda, at the minute, just seemed lost. And this was another weekend, Gordo, where we saw electronics, gremlins creeping in for Honda, and they just didn't really seem to have it. No, completely. I think the BMW is much more of a towards the finished package than the Honda is, um, but it's inconsistent. So you're looking at the Yamaha as being more consistent now. It, it had some tracks it just didn't work at. BMW seems to be the same. Some tracks it'll work, some tracks it won't. They've certainly got talented riders and a great pool of people working on it. They won't be under-resourced. But the Honda is, there's just definitely something fundamentally not quite right there at this level. Um, you can't have riders as experienced as good as, as Haslam and Bautista and get the results they're having quite consistently. And Bautista saying he just can't find the feel on the bike. He, when he, he just goes faster and faster. He can't get the feedback. He tries to go faster and then he falls off. So he's literally riding until he falls off. And that's very admirable, It's etc. But it's, it's no good. You should be knowing that, okay, I'm pushing it here, but I know I'm pushing it. He finds out where the limit is when he's bouncing down the road. And that is not... That's been a recurring theme. That is a problem that needs fixing. Now, I'm I'm actually depressed about the, the Honda situation because HRC is HRC and it's in our paddock. They want to be here and they're not performing the way it, it should have. And I know they've had lots of problems with COVID and everything else. But there's, to me, there is something that needs a redesign or a rethink or whatever with the motorcycle because the rider can't, with that experience can't, not know where the limit is after a year and a half in the project. It's impossible. And Gordo, obviously enough for Honda, as it is right now, 11th in the standings for Bautista, 13th for Haslam, nowhere near where they expected to be. Leon Camier came in this year as the team manager and Camier has no truck with anyone really within the team. He didn't hire them. 
He doesn't have to live and die by the decisions made by previous management. But I haven't heard too much rumors in the last couple of weeks about who Honda are going to actually be able to go out and hire at this stage. You know, there is talk about you know Bautista shopping himself around a little bit, even going to Ducati, cap in hand, saying, put me back onto a bike. And at Honda, you know, this should be a ride that people want, but it's it's gone pretty quiet. It's, you know, some ex-Grand Prix riders or, or Moto2 riders looking for an opportunity and, and riders like that. But we haven't really heard too much about what's going to happen at the Honda. It seems to be really quite far down the pecking order in terms of where riders want to be. Yes, and it's purely and only based on results. And maybe all the parts exist in that bike for it to be competitive. It's certainly fast, but the comments from other riders is it's very aggressive when you, the last thing you want is that you need the bike to be controlled. When you've got over 200 horsepower, you want the bike to be under your control at all times. You don't want 200 and you don't want 10 horsepower more than the guy next to you and you can't ride it. That's we've been moving away from that in racing for years for very good reason. Um, it's it's a very difficult bike to ride without any question. That seems to be it. And the the I don't think rider change is going to fix it. I think machine change is going to fix it. And Gordo, machine change is the interesting thing because we've heard all along about how the riders want a little bit more flex from the bike, but you can't really do that too much on World SBK in terms of bringing it into the chassis. We actually got a question in from Stefan Lloyd-Bowen about this, and he was asking, what changes can you make to the chassis? And the only things you can do to the chassis is to stiffen it up. You can't take material off the chassis. So Honda have to find different ways to try and give that feeling to the riders they have to look at swing arms they have to look at settings they have to look at lots of different areas but there is an overriding weakness in the bike that they can't adapt they can't well, change i mean they won't tell you what it is you try and engage with them and honda you know the most secretive of all the factory teams um it's they've always have been um but if they if their problem is chassis stiffness then that means a redesign a remodel of a rehomologated motorcycle um, if that's not the problem, then other things can help you with the chassis. The chassis itself, just just so people understand, the chassis that forms the, 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 the frame of the bike, you can only add to, you cannot remove any material from it unless it's a lug for a, a bracket. You can take brackets and things off, but you cannot soften the chassis spars or the headstock or whatever. You can't do that. What you can do is using inserts, using the, the allowed adjustability, and you you can play with the stiffness of other parts around about it. The the yokes, the the head pipe itself, you can engineer in certain other flexibilities using the ancillary put, uh, products that you're allowed to put on the bike, the swing arm, the linkages, you name it. You can play with those things. But if your bike is fundamentally too stiff in the middle, and they have to be to some extent. Everybody wants to soften their bikes off in some plane of flex, but they are road bikes. They are designed to hit potholes and survive going up, bashing into your pavement at five miles an hour on the street. You know, uh, you would want to make a, a, a pure racing chassis less stiff than a world superbike is in certain planes of operation. But you you can't do that in the street or people will be bringing back their bent motorbikes to their local dealer saying, hey, you know, I, I crashed at 10 miles an hour and look at my bike's all bent and stuff. So this is the big problem and it has always been. This is a perennial 30-odd-year problem in Superbike World Championship. Everybody wants to make the chassis less stiff, not stiffer. They might want to make it stiffer in one part, in one plane. Um, but... This is where, when you build the bike, you're stuck with it. Like building the engine, you can't say, oh, well, we'll, we'll change it. We'll, we can't get this to what we'll just change it. You can't do it. Obviously enough, Gordo, as well, like uh, Honda seemed to be stuck in the mud. BMW, we saw in Donington and Assen making good progress. Obviously, Most wasn't so wasn't the case either. But uh, it was interesting with Michael Vandermark, especially because Vandermark... Had he he had problems in the Super Bowl session. I think he got caught out by the yellow flags. Qualified seventeenth on the grid, fought his way up into the top ten in all three races. Crashed out of race one, but uh, he showed at least signs of progress. We saw Tom Sykes doing what Tom Sykes does: really good uh, Super Bowl lap. Does well in the Super Bowl race. Keeps himself up there in those top ten spots all the way through the season. But it's tough, tough outing for Tom as well. It's not 
really a bike that he seems to be able to to ride like he wants to ride and i think a lot of that comes down to the pirelli tires now you see it where riders like locatelli they're able to just have the bike on the side of the tire and open the gas and it doesn't seem to really drop that tire life like we saw in the different times in the past so tom's big advantages in the way that he rides a bike you know he's not really able to take profit from that anymore i think for navarra it's going to be interesting to see if they can make a step forward because they have tested there and that was where tom especially said that things started to click into place for them yeah tom's got a very individual riding style um and when he's got everything that he wants he can be he is the fastest person pretty much look at his super bowl record um and it doesn't matter what bike he's been riding um, but when you don't give him what he needs to ride the way he wants, then he, he, he won't be fast, and he certainly won't be fast over full race distance. Um, the whole BMW thing's still a work in progress, and that's it. That th- They are just a little bit behind, and COVID didn't help them either um, with lots of their development things. So it's it's been difficult, but I think the BMW has got more parts to it that can be made to work together in harmony. Um but Tom's such an individual rider, it's difficult to, to match in with him. And you notice how many times Tom, when he gets a good start, he, he starts off well because of his Super Bowl, and then he drops back. And sometimes it's the opposite. When it's the opposite, you know that he's got the bike working the way he wants. And again, there's so many variables now, and there's so many things you can change. Between races, you can say, all right, it's not working and it is working, or conditions have changed, we need to change your bike and all of a sudden it's really not working compared to the, the first race. So they are still finding the, their own way. The bike that Tom wants is a MotoGP bike for his riding style. The more radical it is, the harder the engine is, the, the more he likes it. That's the way he rides. The the harder, the, the better brakes he's got, The that's the way Tom's always ridden. Um, but he needs tyres at last 20 odd laps to do that. And um, the way he rides probably accelerates their, uh, their, the the drop-off in the tyre. The smoother riders will be able to make the tyres last longer. It's, it's a lot more to it than that, but that's the general rule. Yeah, we're going to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast, and when we come back, we've got a Rental Street Sessions interview with Jonathan Ray. Renthal Street Ultralight Rear Sprockets are CNC machined from an advanced aluminum, keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum. The integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear, which increases its longevity. Available for a huge range of motorcycles with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. As we finish up looking back at the check round of World SBK 2021, we're going to finish off this week's show with an interview with Jonathan Ray. But Gordo, before we get to that interview, let's talk about Johnny, because Most was an interesting weekend in a lot of ways, because we saw how on the limit Ray has to be at different times. And obviously the crash in race one, and then the second crash in race one, meant that he didn't score points in that race. And that's been coming for a while, because if you think back to Mizano, he obviously had that massive save. Donington, he nearly crashed down the Craner Curves, then did crash in one of the races as well. And then obviously this crash in Moss. Yeah, I think fundamentally, um, the Kawasaki has now showed its age. I think Johnny's having to ride it harder to get the same result. Um, with the... with When he wins like somewhere at Aston, it just looks easy. Um, because it's Johnny, because of his experience, because of the team, because of everything else. But when it when things become more difficult, there isn't the same margin of advantage from from Johnny, from the bike, from the setup, from the experience. It's also notable that that Most is a new track where they had zero data, so obviously they can't just say, okay, well, we'll put this in and work from there. They had to start from scratch. Considering how good Johnny's other results were, race one was. Um, was unusual, but it's also happened at Donington. What he says is when it goes over the bumps, it's just not reacting to the bumps as well. And the bike almost seems to push him in when he goes over the bumps on the brake. He's having to do a lot of trail braking because he's having to make up for things that his bike doesn't have anymore relative to the opposition, which is getting slightly better all the time. This is uh, This is why Johnny's having to ride to higher level of Johnny's ability, which is huge. Um, but when you when anybody goes right to the edge, sometimes you go tip over. 
Um, that seems, for my money, that's what's happening, is that Johnny's having to ride in a way and in areas and take more risks than he did before because the other opponents are, are climbing, climbing, climbing all the time and climbing more consistently. Um, it's actually amazing how Johnny wasn't throwing the toys out of the pram at the weekend. You would think he might have been. But he wasn't. He's, he's he's just been doing it that long. His approach was kind of calm. His reaction to things was, well, you know, it happened. Um, maybe in private it's different, but in public it's like, well, he did his best. He couldn't help it. He was. He, I think he was happy he got away with that crash in as good a condition as he was. He was sore and it had an effect on him in the second races as well, the the final races. Let's not forget that. But. Um, He's having to ride harder now. That that's the, the, the complete bottom line for everything is he's having to ride harder in, in more tricky places in terms of bike control and in terms of risk to maintain his level with the other riders. Well that level right now, Gordo, is a three point lead over top rack in the standings. And I think that's about right for where things have been through the course of this season. Obviously Top Rack and Assen, he ended up getting taken out by Gurloff, so there was points left on the table there for Top Rack. But Overall, they have been very closely matched. And now as we move into the second half of the season, it's really down to one of them to assert themselves. Scott Redding, 50 points back on Ray. He's still there, thereabouts, like we said earlier on in the show, but needs to keep applying that pressure. What's interesting for me is, over the course of the next few rounds, we've obviously got Magnicor and Portimao, two tracks Johnny's always gone really well at. We've got somewhere like Hareth, where the Yamaha's always been really good. You know, it is going to balance itself out in terms of where we go for the next few rounds, but it's up to you. If you get to a track where your bike's really working well, you really have to be able to take advantage and get big points. Yeah, you have to maximise your maximum um, and minimise your minimum. I know that sounds uh, fairly logical and obvious, if not a little trite, but that's what's going to have to happen with everybody this year. If you're at a Yamaha track, you, the Yamaha riders have to make the most of it because they know that we get to the Kawasaki track, the Kawasaki riders are going to make the most of it, at least one of them. Um, and then you throw the Ducati in there as well a track where the Ducati is going to work best if they get the set up right then they're going to have to maximise that and when they don't that's where in the past Johnny's made his difference it's when, when people have expected to think ah I could go to this track and do well and they don't well Johnny's still doing well on the Kawasaki that dynamic seems to have shifted and Johnny knows now that there's maybe more races he's going to have to just accept second he doesn't want to and you could argue maybe part of the reason he fell is because he didn't want to fall behind uh, Razgat Leoglu or Reading at the weekend. But ultimately, um, you, I think we're back to the good old days of racing whereby this is a Yamaha track, this is a Kawasaki track, this is a Ducati track. It might not be as quite as cut and dried as that, but I think that's what, where we're heading. Yeah, because Gordo, when you look at Most, I think is a good example of it, where Ducati, Yamaha and Kawasaki all seemed very similar for their one lap pace, but Ray had to be on the limit to stick with Top Rack and Redding. Redding looked like he had a consistency advantage over Top Rack. Top Rack could overcome that in race one because he had a, a softer tyre on. Race two, he went a different direction with his setup, couldn't quite match Scott. And it looked like this weekend perfectly encapsulates what we've got in World SBK at the moment, which is on any given day, any of those bikes can be really competitive. Yeah, and the funny thing was that during the middle of the weekend and even after the first race, it was obvious that there was one section of the track that was a Ducati section, one section of the track that was a Yamaha section and one section of the track with a Kawasaki work best. So that to me was the kind of interesting part of most um, at the weekend. Um, but it's again then it's how much better is a Yamaha in the Yamaha section? How much better is a Kawasaki in the Kawasaki section? And how much better is a Ducati in the Ducati section? And basically, the on balance, when you drew it all there, it looked like uh, the Yamaha was the best place until the second race. And then Scott has a, a, a convincing win. You know, so that, again, it's not quite as simple as it was to, to say, oh, well, it's going to be like this. And obviously there might have been a wee bit of magic involved, a wee bit of, uh, you know, Redding really bringing himself in the, and just on it more than he was earlier on the weekend. Um, but it's close. I mean, doesn't, I mean, this is a great thing about it. We're now talking about the, how competitive and close and, and tiny little differences, whereas in the past it was like, how close can anybody get to Johnny in any particular weekend? Well, that's changed. Thank goodness. Yeah, it's, it's exciting times for World SBK and uh, we're going to get the chance now to hear from Jonathan Ray. Myself and David sat down with him at the Dutch round at Aston a few weeks ago. 
Jonathan Ray joining us on the Renthal Street Sessions on the Paddock Pass podcast. And Johnny, just before we get started, obviously you've had to use an awful lot of Renthal products over the last few years. On the road race side, you know, my handlebar angle, I just had to speak with Perry earlier to find out because it's not something I pay attention to. As soon as I sat on the bike, everything sort of felt right. I run a sort of 8.5 degree bend on my handlebar and, um, and I have it quite flat as well. You know, I have the bar more flat than normal. I don't know why it's, uh, you know, with the superbike center of gravity being a lot higher than MotoGP, for example, uh, the tank being bigger, the rider, you know, it's very hard to get your elbows over the tank. So the higher, the higher the handlebar position can be, the more you can get off the side of the bike. So, um, yeah, pretty cool. It's interesting you say about that because um, uh, I think in the last few years we've seen in MotoGP as well that handlebar positions have been changing. They've moved sort of up and out rather than, uh, you know, down and narrow. You always think of that racing crouch where you've got your hands almost sort of vertical to the ground, especially if you see, you know, the photos from the 50s and the 60s. It's, they're, they're, they're almost sort of flat, but it, you're, it's much more about control now. It's a different way of controlling the bike. Yeah, so the, the higher and the more flat the bar can be the more control you have um and i think the evolution has just gone with horsepower and the the physicality of actually riding a motorbike you have got to forget you can't forget these bikes in superbike terms okay uh we have you know more than 220 horsepower 170 plus kilo bike means you know you have to be in control if your handlebars are really close you know that's nice and cool for aerodynamics but when you come to change direction you don't have that leverage and um, you know I think MotoGP I don't know horsepower in MotoGP must be you know high 200s for sure uh, so trying to muscle something like that it has to be easy you know it's all f- fair and well you know riding these bikes fast in a straight line but you've got to go around a lot of corners you know and having that control and, and trust and feeling um, it's personal preference and for me, the, the flatter and, and the higher the bar can be, the more control the rider has. Just, Johnny, you mentioned about schoolboy motocross as well. Obviously, Jake's just had his first race. What kind of a motocross dad are you? Oh, man, that was so, so stressful. Um, quite good, actually, because I had the... The first weekend was strange because he had such a good qualifying. You know, there's 25 kids or something there, and it's halfway through a season, so... I was at home. I said, hey, do you want to, do you want to race this weekend? He, he's, football's his primary sport. I said, yeah, why not? And he qualified like sixth. And I thought, oh, this is an Ulster champ, like an Ulster championship event. I thought, oh, no way. Like, this is big pressure. And he got, you know, he's, he's so small, my son, and the bikes are so big. So every time he crashes, it's like a big job for him to pick the bike up and he can't start it. So he lost his lots of time and he had a few mistakes, but he, he loved it. The second weekend was a little bit strange, though, because he had a crash in race one after, you know, almost hole shotting. But race two, he, you know, half an hour before the start of the race, he said, um, I'm too tired, Dad. I, I'm too tired. I don't want to do this. I thought, too tired? Are you joking me? And my wife was, I said, Tosh, what did I do? This is like where I struggle. And I said, I'm going to have to walk away. I don't want to engage with him and just let him be too tired because it should be fun and it should be his thing. But I walked away thinking, really too tired? Like, I was never that kid. You know, I was, my dad was too tired driving around after me. And I, my dad was there watching. I said, Dad, was I like this? Help me here, because I don't know what to do. He says, no, I had the opposite problem with you. He says, you wanted to go practice in the wet because you knew you would race in the wet. And I didn't want to let you practice in the wet because I had too much washing to do afterwards. So, <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, it's new emotions. But I think, Honestly, it's more, uh, it's probably more Windsor Park for me than Donington Park. So I think I'll be saved. What about for yourself then as well, Johnny? Obviously, the last six years, huge amount of success since you went to Kawasaki. And then we've seen recently the rumours about potentially looking at a Patrona seat in MotoGP. Is there anything to that or is it just a bit of talk? Honestly, it's, uh, it's white noise in the background. And um, I don't want to get drawn into it too much because you know, I've got my own things going on right now in, in World Superbike. But um, it's always good. It's not good. It's, it's funny listening to it, you know, when you know the substance behind it. And um, I haven't been involved with anything. You know, my manager's always looking out for me and my career. But it's, um, you know, I, I, I think it's hard to know. I think I've maybe missed the boat on the GP thing, um, which is a real shame because I feel right now I'm riding in the 
the best shape I ever have been. I'm as motivated, like motivations never at an all-time high. And um, but yeah, it's right at the minute. It's just background noise and just filling fill, filling column inches for for the readers. The package is such an important part of racing. I mean, that, that's for you obviously a reason. Uh to either take or not take a racing MotoGP, but it's also what has worked so incredibly well in World Superbikes. You, um, I mean, the Kurosaki's a good bike, absolutely a fantastic bike. You're, you know, in the best, in the shape of your life. Um, I think you're right, yeah, certainly just from watching, you seem to be in a more, uh, as determined, digging in as much as, as hard as ever. But also you've got the right package, you've got the right crew chief, you've got the right team. How... How much control, well, I mean, when you signed that, did you know this was going to be the right package? How much control do you have over the package? You sound like my manager now and giving me my own advice. But um, do you know, honestly, when I signed for Kawasaki, I wanted to bring um, Chris Pike across. I'd worked with Chris Pike for years in um, BSB when I first started. Then when things were going a little bit, you know, when I was button heads at 10K, um, back in my early sort of bike days, I wanted somebody from the outside to come in. And it wasn't their philosophy. They were always a very Dutch team and nobody comes in from, no outsiders come in. But as soon as I got Chris in there, I felt more at home. I had my best seasons. You know, in the last the last year, I think I you know, I was third in the championship, very close to Sylvan who won, you know, 70 something points. So I felt like I did really good. So I wanted to bring him here, but it was categorically no. That was a non-starter when I first joined. and. Before joining Kawasaki, I knew Perry as a, a rider, not a crew chief. But the the opinion from the outside was Tom was the winning rider, and all you heard was the words, the names Marcel and Danilo, and thanks Marcel and Danilo, and Marcel and Danilo. So honestly, I felt like I was joining the B team. And um, but straight away in the first test, it was so clear that wasn't the case. Um, you know, the group of people. I mean, we just talked about it in the motorhome this morning. Perry came over and you can't find a group of more passionate people. Put them together. Because at the end of the day, this is a job for lots of people. And lots of people can bitch and moan about their job or have their 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 problems with this person. But inside that box, they're all there to do the, the best they can to win. And they're so passionate that, I mean, you wouldn't tell the team manager this, but if they were all millionaires and money wasn't an option, they would just turn up here with equal passion to do the same thing, you know? And it's um, it's very hard to find a collectively a group of people working with a group of people like that. And I, I really have that inside there. So that's a huge, a huge positive um, an advantage that we have inside the team. And I'm really, really grateful to find that. Obviously enough as well, Johnny, this year, You've got a big test you're up against top rack, it looks like, for the championship. Last year was yourself against Reading, the year before, Bautista. Each year seems that the challenge, obviously, is getting closer and closer. But uh, like, what's your assessment of top rack and the task that you're up against with them this year? Well, I've always said um, top rack's right from his early days in Superstock. I'm very fond of top rack. You know, he's a came through a Kawasaki rider. And, um, you know, I feel like... I've never been intimidated by people on the same equipment, for example. So even in his early superbike career, we uh, with with the Showa guys, they were the common link between um, KRT and Puchetti. So you know, at t- certain tests or or weekends, we would time it that he would be on track right behind me, and I would pretty much hold his hand and take him round um, apex to apex, and um, that really really helped. And I think um, now being as on a competitive manufacturer, he's um, you know super strong, and you know it's nice to race with him now because I feel he's a friend as well. So, but on track, he's he's ruthless and he's a strong competitor, and looking forward to to seeing how the end of the season plays out. To, I think to be a good winner, you have to accept losing and understanding when the time is to lose. Uh, of course, everyone can make mistakes, but the important thing is to learn from mistakes. Um, my team manager Gim is very sort of words that stick with me. Is he says forget about he says it's everybody's goal to be world champion. He says but that's not a goal. That's a consequence of all these little battles you have along the way. So make the goal race one, and then race two, and then race three, and the championship's the consequence. So I think um, you know thinking that step by step philosophy work has worked, and and also. 
having a okay not a bad day but not a winning weekend I don't get as emotionally high and low anymore you know of course winning a race is so euphoric and it's incredible but you know you have a bad race or you know last weekend a crash you know I don't go home and punish myself or get hung up on it it's it's a bad race you know and and you you know Alvaro taught me a lot of good lessons in in uh, 19 yeah that just accept it next weekend's a new challenge come ready and and you never know what can happen so um yeah them kind of little methods and kind of work step by step's worked pretty well so far johnny obviously you're going for the seventh this year so a big thank you for joining us on the rent all street sessions so we're going to finish off today's show gordo thanks as always for joining us on the paddock pass podcast absolute pleasure mate thank you and a big thanks to everyone for supporting the Paddock Pass podcast as well. If you go to patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, you can become a Paddock Insider. That gives you lots of extra MotoGP content as well with David, Adam and Neil discussing and breaking down all the action on a daily basis from each Grand Prix. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.